If you have your Bibles, turn back with me to that text of Scripture that was read earlier on James chapter 2. I've been doing a little series at Newcastle on the Protestant Reformation, and I've been doing it over the last three to four weeks. I've got another three to four weeks to go, and this message actually touches a little bit in a different way on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I want to talk about the Holy Spirit and assurance today. Let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Holy Father, we thank you and praise you so, so much for your goodness and your mercy for your grace and for your righteousness, for your steadfastness and your love for us, undeserved, unmerited. Father, we didn't do anything to earn your favor, to merit your favor, yet you chose to love us. You chose to redeem us. You chose to call us to yourself, and we thank you for that. We praise you for that, Lord. We honor you for that this morning. We want to love you this morning more than we've ever loved you before. I pray, Lord, that as we take a look at your word this morning, that you would lift up your glory this morning, that you would lift up your name, that, Father, those of us in this room who know you by grace would would want to just trust you more and serve you better. And I do pray, Lord, for anyone here today who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, by your grace and by your power and by your spirit, you'd bring them to a saving knowledge of your Son. And we'll give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told about an elderly man who once approached the great preacher and Bible teacher, Harry Ironside, and he said this. He says, I won't leave this place unless I know that I'm saved or unless I know that it's hopeless to seek to be sure of it. I want a definite witness, something that I can't be mistaken about. In response, Ironside looked at him and said, Suppose you had a vision of an angel who told you that your sins were forgiven. Would that be enough for you to rest on? The man said, Yes, I think it would. An angel should be right, and after all, he should know. And then Ironside said this, But suppose that on your deathbed, Satan came to you and told you, I was that angel, transformed as an angel of light, so that I might deceive you. What would you then say or think? Well, the man was speechless. He was terrified in an obvious state of great distress. And Ironside looked at the man again and told him, God has given us something much more dependable than the voice of an angel. He has given us His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. And He's testified in His own word that if we place our trust in Jesus Christ alone to save us from our sins, then we can have the blessed assurance that we are indeed saved and secured in Him and that all our sins have been forgiven. And Ironside then read the man the words of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5 where John says, I write these things to you who believe or to you who trust in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Praise God. The Spirit of God used Ironside's words to open that man's eyes and to bring great comfort to his troubled soul. This morning, I've decided that I wanted to preach on the subject of the Holy Spirit and assurance, which is indeed a very serious subject to be preaching on. In my estimation, it's a matter of great spiritual importance. Whenever a person is unsure about their salvation, or when a believer is unsure about their eternal security in Jesus Christ, it'll always affect them in all kinds of very serious ways. Nothing will defeat or frustrate a believer more quickly than the lack of assurance that they are forever safe and secure in their relationship with God. 
It'll rob us of our joyfulness in Christ, our usefulness in Jesus Christ, and our restfulness in Jesus Christ. And I know these things are true because for many years in my own personal life, I struggled deeply and terribly with doubting my own personal salvation. It was a torment to my mind. One of the greatest burdens and struggles my soul has ever faced. It was a miserable and fearful time in my life. I was in great spiritual distress and anguish. I was deeply troubled and tortured within myself. There is no spiritual misery like the despair a believer endures who struggles with doubting their salvation. In fact, it was in the midst of all those gnawing internal struggles I wrote the words to the following poem. Faith needs refreshing with the waters of the word. Without its streams, doubts do unfold. Wash me, O Lord, with seas of truth that I might stand thy grace to prove. Jesus, my Lord, turn to me thy face. Without thy countenance, I have no grace to fight the battle. When doubts arise, stay close to me and be my guide. How can I venture thy word to prove? When you seem to me so far removed, but you promised you would never leave, thy word, O God, I do believe. I can testify this morning that by the grace of God, and by the grace of God, I've learned over the years where true rest can and must be found. It can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ and in the full sufficiency of his saving work at the cross of Calvary. That is the only place that you and I will ever find true rest. It continues to break my heart as a pastor that so many believers, maybe even you sitting here this morning, still lack the assurance of their salvation. They lack the confidence that their sins are truly forgiven and that their home in heaven is secured by grace. In 1654, the Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote these words. He said, assurance is the believer's ark where he sits like Noah-like, quiet and still in the midst of all distractions and destructions, commotions and confusions. However, he says, most Christians live between fears and hopes and hang, as it were, between heaven and hell. Sometimes they hope that their state is good and other times they fear that their state is bad. Now they hope that all is well and that it shall go well with them forever. Then they fear that they shall perish by the hand of such a corruption or by the prevalency of such or such a temptation. They are like a ship in the middle of a storm that is tossed here and there. It doesn't have to be like that, does it? It doesn't have to be that way. The Bible says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. It says, And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. See, where God grants righteousness by grace, He also adds His peace and His assurance. We can know that we are truly saved. Now, before addressing the foundations upon which true assurance must lie, I think it's imperative of me to discuss a subject that needs to be addressed whenever we talk about real assurance. And that subject is this, the subject or the nature of saving faith. What kind of faith is it that truly saves I mean, we all need to know that. It's critically important, and we'll find no better text of Scripture that'll answer that question for us than the one that was read earlier on in James chapter 2. Now, I know that James never claimed to be a lawyer, 
But there is a sense that he sounds very much like a prosecuting attorney in the text that we have before us. He states the heart of his claim in verse 17. Look at it. He says this. So also faith, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. And then he powerfully and persuasively argues for the case that he's trying to make. I think before us lies one of the most controversial texts in the entire New Testament. And so before we actually sit down in this courtroom gallery, and I want you to picture this as a courtroom gallery this morning, and listen carefully to James as he argues his case, I think we need to be very clear about what's actually on trial in this text. See, there are those who interpret this passage of Scripture as if James was arguing for salvation by works and as if he was contradicting everything that the Apostle Paul preached and taught regarding the the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But that's not what he's doing. That's not the case. Both James and Paul stand together in their convictions and in their claims. There's no contradiction here. John MacArthur said it like this. James is not contrasting two methods of salvation, faith versus works. His contrast is between two kinds of faith, one that saves and one that doesn't. That's the whole point. You see, in this text, James is not challenging the biblical fact of saving faith. All he's doing is indicting a faith that has no works. You see, he's condemning the profession of faith that never results in the practice of faith. That's the issue. That's what's at stake here, and it's an important point for us to understand. And so with this in our minds, we need to listen in as we make our way through the text. And as James James convincingly prosecutes this idea of faith without works. Three points I want to draw out, and I trust we'll be able to see how all of this fits in at the end. First, the complaint that's raised against faith without works. Number two, the case that's revealed against faith without works. And number three, the conclusion that's reached against faith without works. And so first of all then, I want you to consider with me the complaint that is raised against faith without works. Look at verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Notice very carefully the phrase, if someone says he has faith. The kind of faith that is under indictment in this case is a faith that a man merely claims to have, even though there's no evidence of that faith whatsoever in his life. That's what James is dealing with. That's the issue that has captured his heart and his mind. And in that verse, James lays out two very clear indictments against the faith that has no works. And the first one is this. The problem with the faith that is not accompanied by works is that it has no profit. No profit. Look at verse 14 again. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? That word good there, as it's used in the text, literally means a benefit. The verse could be translated, what benefit is it, my brothers? Or what profit is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have any works? That's a very good question, right? And James illustrates exactly what he means by that in verses 15 and 16. He sets up this scenario in which a hungry, poorly clothed brother or sister in Christ comes to them for help. Look at what he says. 
He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, James says, what good is that? It's not good, is it? There's no profit there. There's no benefit in doing something like that. What James is saying is this. It might sound really religious for you to speak a blessing to your brother or sister in need, but what good is that blessing if it's only spoken? Your words will not feed or clothe a single human being. They're useless. They're without any kind of meaning whatsoever. We all get that, do we not? We understand that. We see that. And in the very same way, my might sound very religious and good for a person to say, I know Jesus Christ. I'm a believer. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was a little child. But if that profession of faith is never corroborated by a life that is marked with good works, by a life that seeks godliness of living, what good is that profession of faith, James is saying? What profit does it have in that person's life? What benefit does it bring? James says, none. Absolutely none. It is useless. If you've been truly saved, then knowing Jesus Christ will always have a tangible, visible, and profitable effect upon your life. It'll change you. Friends, listen to me. God makes new creatures out of us in Jesus Christ. Does He not? He puts a new heart within us. He puts a new disposition within us. Not perfection. We understand that. But a heart that desires to please Him. That's the power of new covenant grace. The genuineness of profession of faith in Christ as Lord and Savior is always evidenced more by what a person does than by what a person claims. See, a person who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but who never seeks to live a Christ-honoring life, is a fraud. Their profession of faith is not true. The New Testament is full of these kinds of warnings, right? Listen to what John says. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? He came to destroy the works of the devil, which are the works of sin. Right? Amen, brother, whoever said that. That's why Jesus came. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel said to Joseph. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Right? That's why Jesus came. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot go on sinning. He cannot continue in a lifestyle of rebellion against God, in a lifestyle of self-centeredness, in a lifestyle of living apart from God's word. He's been born of God. I could go on and on. There's so many other texts. But James is saying here, I contend that faith without works has no profit, has no benefit in the lives of those who claim. And he says this too. Faith without works isn't something that not only has profit, doesn't have profit, it also has no power. No power. Listen to what James says in verse 14. He asks the question, can that faith save him? Is this not the subject we're dealing with this morning? The assurance of our salvation? 
What James is arguing here is that a faith that, has, that is only professed but never carried out into practice is a faith that is not possessed, and that kind of faith has no power to save anyone. In other words, it's not true faith at all. And that's why James sums up his complaint in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. These are not minor charges. This is not a religious misdemeanor. James alleges, listen to me, friends, James alleges that it is possible to claim a faith in Jesus Christ and still die and go to a Christless eternity in hell still claiming that faith. See, in the end, it's how we behave that is the proof of our salvation or the evidence of our lostness. Those who consistently disobey the Word of God give evidence that they don't have a life of God within their souls. Unless you think for a second that these charges that James is making are extreme, they're simply an echo of what Jesus Christ Himself said in the Sermon on the Mount when He said this, These are the most terrifying words these ears of mine have ever heard, and this mind of mine has ever even thought about, and this heart of mine has ever felt. He said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If that doesn't rock your life, nothing will. Jesus says, on that day, that great day of judgment, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus Christ himself will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are not minor things. These are not empty words. This is the most serious subject our souls could ever engage The complaint that's raised against a faith without works is it has no profit. It has no power. It doesn't exist and therefore can't save. Number two, James not only deals with the complaint that's raised against faith without works, but he he also deals with the case that's revealed against faith without works. And so after he makes this opening statement, he, he begins to lay out his case against this notion that you can have a faith that doesn't result in works. And as we read the text, we find that James... James's case has basically two parts. Number one, he uses a logical argument. And number two, he refers to the authority in the matter of true saving faith. And so I want you to listen, first of all, to the argument that James starts with. In verses 18 and 19, he gives us a two-pronged, indisputable argument against the kind of faith that produces no works. Look at verse 18. He says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so the first prong of his argument is that faith without works is invisible. It simply cannot be proven. You see that in verse 18. Look at it again. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so what James is arguing there is that it's impossible to prove or demonstrate that you have saving faith in Jesus Christ apart from some kind of visible manifestation of that faith. 
I mean, your faith has got to be seen in how you live your life, right? The only way to truly measure if someone has genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ is by the fruits that that faith produces. If there's no fruit, there's no faith. I know that's true. I'm going to tell you, listen, I'm going to tell you something here. If I told you in the next five minutes that this roof would cave in, and everybody in this building that's in this building, because I knew there's a bomb here, and it was going to blow up in five minutes, and everybody in the building that's in the building will die and perish in the next five minutes unless you get out. If you believe what I'm saying, what are you going to do? You're going to flee from this place, will you not? If you don't believe what I do, you're going to stay here. It's not going to impact your life at all. Now, James's argument is that faith is not only uh, faith that works is not only invisible; it's also insufficient. Look at verse nineteen. Look at what he says. You believe that God is one; you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James powerfully contends that even the demons in hell believe that God exists. They believe that He's all powerful and all knowing, but their faith is a faith that does not produce any kind of works. They believe and yet they shudder. They believe and yet they tremble. Can I tell you something? Listen, the demons of hell are all monotheistic, they're theologically aware and astute. Right? They believe that there's only one God. They knew who Jesus is. They believe in Him to some extent, but not enough to repent and to acknowledge His rightful rule over them. They will not bow their knees or their wills to the Lordship of King Jesus. And James is telling us that kind of faith is not true saving faith. And then he makes this argument beginning in verse 20. Look at what he says. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And so James is here pointing to the biblical president of works-proving faith that's found in the life of Abraham and Rahab. He's basically saying, do you want me to prove to you that faith without works is dead? Do you want me to show you that from Scripture? That's what James is saying. Look at verse 21. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Look at what he says in verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? I want you to consider what James is saying here. Listen to me very carefully because I don't want anybody to leave this say, Pastor Jacques not preaching the gospel of grace. Abraham was a beloved patriarch, was he not? Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. But both, this man and this woman, validated their faith in God, not by what they professed, but by what they practiced. It was not their works that saved them, but that their faith, which was the instrument through which God did save them, was proven to be true by the actions they performed. The possession of true saving faith is always proven by the practice that flows out of it. I mean, this is such an open and shut case. You see, when James appeals to the authority of Scripture to prove his point, to make his argument, the case has essentially been proven. There's nothing else that I could say about it. See, it's one thing for me to make a human argument, but it's an entirely different thing if that argument is rooted in Scripture. 
The one who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but never seeks to live in obedience to Jesus Christ, does not know Jesus Christ. That's what James is saying. One more point before I move into the application, which is going to be three foundational principles I want you to leave with this morning. So James is bringing in his closing argument. Basically what he's saying is, what are we to conclude about this whole matter that he's been trying to prove? And there are two things we have to conclude. The first one is this, we must admit that works are always the consequence of true saving faith. Always. Look at verse 21 once again. Think about what James is saying here in the illustration of Abraham. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And that phrase, justified by works, has really been bothersome to so many who've studied this text. It seems to ooze out the thought that you and I are saved by works and not by faith alone. But I want you to see what James says in verses 22 and 23. Listen to what he says. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, the works that James is talking about justified the fact that Abraham had already believed God. When was it that Abraham believed God and had that righteousness imputed to him by faith? Do you remember what text it was? When was it in the book of Genesis? Anybody know? You seminary students, you know the verse? Genesis 15 verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, let me ask you this. When was it that Abraham took his son Isaac to to Mount Moriah in order to be sacrificed? That was in Genesis chapter 22, a full 40 years after God said Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, James says he was justified back here. But that faith was proven when he obeyed God in Genesis 22. The same is true with Rahab. She confessed her faith in God before she hid the spies. Her faith came first, but that faith was proven by the works that followed. And that's the point that James is making. Paul taught the doctrine of justification by faith, and James is teaching the doctrine of the justification of faith. How do you know you have saving faith? That's what James is doing. And works are not only the consequence of real faith, they're also the confirmation of real faith. Look at verse 26. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead... So also faith, apart from works, is dead. I want you to think about that for a second. Imagine driving down the road, and you see a body that's lying motionless on the grass just off the highway. I've seen that time and time again in my career as a police officer. As people begin to run over to that person's aid, one of the very first questions that will probably be asked is this, are they still breathing? If they're not breathing, what would we assume? We would assume that they were dead. See, breath is the evidence that there's life. Is that not true? You know I'm living because I'm breathing, I'm moving. And that's exactly what James is saying here. He's telling us that our works are the evidence of spiritual life. There's the evidence that something happened to us in regeneration. God made us new creatures. He's also saying that the lack of good works is the evidence of spiritual death. And so regardless of what we might profess, if we don't have the righteousness that must exist in a a true Christian, this righteousness that God implants in us through sanctifying work, 
then we can't believe that we're truly saved. Any more that we could say that a dead man is alive, it's not possible. And so in light of everything that James has said, the question I want to ask you this morning is this, can a believer have true assurance? Does the Bible teach that believers in Jesus Christ are forever secure in Him, having the hope of eternal life without fear, or can they ultimately fall away from their secure position in Christ? If you and I are going to be able to rest in the assurance of our salvation, we need to place our faith and trust in at least three solid spiritual foundations. The first one is this. We need to have faith in the provision of God. Number two, we need to have faith in the promise of God. And number three, we need to have faith in the power of God. Don't forget that. We need to have faith in the provision of God, faith in the promise of God, and faith in the power of God. So first of all, we need to have faith in the provision of God. And I want to ask you a series of questions. On what do you depend to take you into heaven? Do you trust in yourself? Do you trust in your zeal or devotion? Do you trust in your works or your conduct? Do you trust in your religion? Do you trust in your baptism? Do you trust in your church attendance or your church membership? Is your hope in a pope? Is your hope in a priest or a pastor? Do you depend on your prayers? Do you depend on your Christian service? Do you depend on your knowledge of the scriptures? Do you believe that on that final day when God judges the thoughts and intents of the human heart that he'll weigh your good deeds and compare them to your bad deeds, and if your good deeds somehow outweigh your bad deeds, that he will accept you into his presence? Is that where you place your trust this morning? Or do you trust in Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ alone, and in the atonement that he made at the cross as your only hope for salvation? Is Christ alone your only source of confidence? What do you finally rest and trust in for your eternal redemption? That's the question. John Flavel, a 16th century preacher, said it like this. I love these words. How dangerous it is to join anything of our own to the righteousness of Christ in pursuit of justification before God. Jesus Christ will never endure this. It reflects upon his work dishonorably. Listen, he will be all or he will be none in our justification. If he has finished the work, what need is there of our own additions? And if he's not finished the work, to what purpose are they? Can we finish that which Christ himself could not complete? Can I ask you something this morning? Did Jesus finish the work? What were the last, some of the last words spoken by the Son of God as he hung on that cross? He spoke, it is what? It is finished, praise God. Praise God, Jesus Christ has accomplished his people's salvation by his life by his death, and by his resurrection from the dead. There is nothing we can do to add to what Christ has done. Do you believe that this morning? Amen. 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 See, that's why Paul would say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you want to rest in the assurance of your salvation? Rest in the provision that the Lamb of God made to rescue you 
from the wrath of God. Rest there. To doubt your salvation is to walk to the foot of the cross and to look at the dying Savior and say, Jesus, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. I need to add to what you've done. I remember reading the story of an evangelist who once went to preach at a Bible college. In the middle of his message, he said this, for years he'd preached the gospel, but he himself wasn't saved. He thought he was saved, but he really wasn't. And then he came down really hard on the Bible college students to make sure that they themselves were truly saved and not deceived. Now you can well imagine that his words caused many of the students to begin to doubt their salvation. Created a great stir and panic in the school. Many of the students went and spoke to their professors about their fears. And one, one of their professors the following day got up and he addressed the student body with these words. And I love these words. Listen to what he said. Please listen to these words. He said this. What are you trusting in to get you to heaven? Are you trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation? If you're trusting in anyone or anything else, you need to get saved. But if you're trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation, he said, I want you to listen to me very carefully. If you're trusting in Jesus at this very moment, it means that you started trusting in him at some point of time in your life. When is not important. What is important is that now, at this very moment, you are trusting in Jesus Christ to get you into heaven. If you're trusting in Christ at this very moment, then drop your anchor on the great promise which says, he that believes on the Son has everlasting life and he will not be condemned. He's passed from death to life. Praise God. God used that professor's words to settle the doubts that had troubled the minds and hearts of so many of those young students. And I'm going to ask you the very same question this morning that that professor asked those students so many years ago. What are you trusting in to get you into heaven? Friend, if you are trusting in anyone or anything else other than Jesus Christ, you need to get saved today. But if you're trusting in Christ alone, then drop your anchor in that promise that says, He that believes on the Son has everlasting life and will not be condemned. He is passed from death to life. Praise God. Praise God. Number two. If you're going to rest in the assurance of your salvation, not only do you need to have faith in the provision of God, but you need to have faith in the promise of God. The promise of God. Listen, the Bible teaches unequivocally that God forever keeps His own and that no genuinely saved person will ever be lost. Do you remember what Jesus said? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, and no one will snatch him out of my hand. He says, My Father who's given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch him out of his hand. I and the Father are one. They shall never perish. To deny that truth is to deny the following five essential biblical doctrines. Number one is to deny the purposes of God which are immutable. Friends, God saved us according to his purpose and not our own. Is that not true? 
Do you remember what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 28? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and who've been what? Who've been called according to His purpose. Can I ask you a question this morning? What was the purpose of God in saving us? Was it merely to justify us and then lose us? Or was His purpose to justify, to sanctify, and to glorify? What was His purpose? I'll tell you what his purpose was. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What was God's purpose in saving us? To justify, to sanctify, and to glorify. Now let me ask you a question. Will God fail in accomplishing his divine purpose? Yes or no? No, he will not. The Lord himself has sworn, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. To deny the preservation of the saints is to deny the purposes of God, which are immutable. Secondly, it's to deny the power of God, which cannot fail. Peter says it like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's to deny the power of God which cannot fail. Deny the promises of God which must be fulfilled. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. It's to deny the prayers of the Savior, which are effectual. The Bible says, therefore, he's able to save forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I find great comfort in that verse. Whenever I go to the Lord in prayer, I always thank Him for His intercessions on this man's behalf. I thank Him that every moment Jesus is interceding before the Father on my behalf. Praise God. And number five is to deny the pledge of the Spirit which cannot be broken. The Bible says you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glorious grace. The Bible teaches unequivocally that God forever keeps his own. And then no genuinely saved person will ever be lost. To deny that truth is to deny the purpose of God, the power of God, the promise of God, the prayers of Christ, and the pledge of the Spirit. And I'm not willing to do that this morning. I rest in the purpose of God. I rest in the power of God. I rest in the promise of God. I rest in the prayers of Christ. I rest in the pledge of the Spirit. And I find peace and comfort for my soul. And number three, if we're ever to rest in the assurance of our salvation, we need to have faith in the power of God. I want to say something here because I I want you to get this. I think sometimes as Reformed Baptists, and I'm a Reformed Baptist through and through, five-point Calvinist all the way, we sometimes forget the need for human responsibility We don't talk about that. Listen to me. Misunderstandings are avoided. And biblical truth is safeguarded if we see the security of the believer in terms of preservation and perseverance. 
Those two lines of biblical thought need to be considered in light of each other because we could easily distort this aspect of divine truth. Yes, the Bible says that God preserves His elect. He will keep His elect. He will see that they are glorified. But the Bible also teaches that believers need to continue in the faith. They need to continue in godliness, right? In fact, the Scriptures teach that only those who do persevere in faith and in godliness are headed for a heavenly destiny. Did you know that? Jesus said, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end, Jesus said, he will be saved. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. If we neglect the biblical teaching of human responsibility, then the following two practical implications will result. Number one, there'll be a denial of God's electing love, of the goal of his electing love. And what is the goal of God's electing love? It's our conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Friends, our sanctification is central in the saving purposes of God the Father. It's why He chose us. Paul says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. It is central in the saving purposes of God the Father. Our sanctification is vital in the saving operations of God the Son. It is why Jesus died for us. The Bible says He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do that which is good. And number three, our sanctification is indispensable in the saving activities of God, the Holy Spirit. It's why the Spirit of God lives within us. He lives within us to convict us and conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So if we neglect the biblical teaching of human responsibility, then the result will be a denial of the goal of God's electing love, which is our sanctification. And number two, and I'll close with this, there'll be a condemnation of men in damnable hope. I want you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to this. Friends, listen. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. This is what you were. But now you've been justified. Now you've been sanctified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We can never allow ourselves to be deceived into believing that we can persistently live in these kinds of ways without repentance and still inherit the kingdom of God. Our churches are full of people like this. I love the people that I'm a pastor to in Newcastle. But I know that there are people in that congregation who live like that. True believers in Jesus Christ will persevere in faith. They will persevere in godliness. And they will only do so because of God's gracious preservation of their souls by His almighty 
power, but they will persevere. They may stumble, they may fall, they may turn to the left, they may turn to the right, and we all do every single day of our lives. We stumble and fall. James says it like this later on in James chapter 3. We all stumble in many ways, every single one of us. But listen, God's Spirit is in us. God's Spirit is calling us back. He convicts us of sin. He brings us back to the foot of the cross in repentance, does He not? Is he not doing that in your life this morning? When you sin against God, do you not feel like David, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me? My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I confessed my sins to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my iniquity? I will not stand here this morning and make a judgment on a man or a woman who claims faith in Jesus Christ. And falls away from from living a life of obedience and dies in that condition, whether or not they're truly saved, because it is not my place to make that judgment. But I will say this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they would have, if they would have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they were not all of us. Friends, listen to me. I have approached this text of Scripture in James chapter 2 as a courtroom scene. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, what role you play in this courtroom drama. Well, first, let me be very, very clear about something. You are not the judge in this courtroom. Only Jesus Christ can judge the heart and the thoughts and the attitudes and actions of men and women. And we are certainly not the jury in this courtroom either. An individual's salvation is never decided by a jury of their peers. So where are we in this courtroom? I suggest we can only be in one of two places. We're either sitting in the gallery saying amen to everything that James has articulated of what we know to be true and right about salvation, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, as taught by Scripture alone, but that the faith that saves is never alone. We're either there or we're the defendant or the accused standing before the the bar whose faith without works is on trial. Is that you, friend? Is that you this morning? Is your faith on without works on trial? If it is, I'm begging you in the name of the Son of God to repent of your sins and to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins. And from this day forward, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. And I pray that the Spirit of God would work in such a powerful way to draw you to that place. If you are a believer here this morning, my dear brother and sister in Christ, and you're doubting your salvation, and you're struggling the way I struggled for many years, even while I was in Bible college, I want you to rest in the provision of God. I want you to rest in the promise of God. I want you to rest in the power of God. He will hold us fast. He will hold us fast. He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. See, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock, 
my feet will stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Rest in the provision, promise, and power of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that your spirit would do his mighty work in this place. I pray for that young person. I pray for that man or that woman sitting in this room this morning whose faith without works is on trial. I pray for their salvation. I pray, Father, that by your mercy and grace they would turn from their sins and trust Christ alone to save them. I pray for that dear saint of God who sincerely trusted in Jesus. And yet, Father, this morning is struggling with the assurance of their salvation. I pray, Father, they would look to your provision, which is your Son, Jesus Christ. They would look to your promise, which is the unchanging nature of your promises in your word. And that they would look to your power, which is your ability to keep those that you've called. Father, only you can do this work in us. You must hold us fast. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.